Hello and welcome to the fourth in our series of Demystifying Media podcasts. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Caroline S. Chambers Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon, and today I'm joined by Stacey Marie Ishmael. Hi. Hi. Stacey is currently a Knight Fellow at Stanford, and she's previously held senior roles at a number of major media organisations, including BuzzFeed and the Financial Times. Welcome to the Demystifying Podcast, Stacey. Delighted to be here. So uh, earlier this week, you spoke as part of our latest Demystifying Media lecture series. And Stacey's talk was uh, really focused on the impact and importance of the user experience, particularly on digital platforms and particularly on mobile. (laughs) Your talk was entitled The Flattening of News and Its Consequences for Trust, or How Designers and Developers Have Made It Harder for You to Tell Truth from Real Fake. Yeah. Great title. (laughs) What does it mean? Um, It means a couple of things. It's... I've really been interested in how we switch our brains on and off when it comes to deciding this makes me sad, this makes me angry, I believe this, I don't believe this, and then how that is itself a function of the experience of the thing, right? So when you look at a print newspaper, which I used to do, when you look at a print newspaper, you can like, oh, this is the New York Times, this is the National Enquirer, (laughs) this is the New York Post. This is the New York Daily News. And you have an immediate and extremely visceral sense of what is this going to be like? What are these kinds of stories going to be? You know, it's clear from the headlines. It's clear from the choice of the photography, how they're writing the stories. It's much harder to get all of that information from the way that most things are presented online these days. So the the, the democratization of the Internet has made it hard for us to discern fact from fiction because everything kind of looks the same. Everything looks the same. You know, it's like you can post completely made up garbage on Medium and you're like, oh, that that looks good. Must be real. (laughs) (laughs) Because your brain is just shortcutted into believing that a visual indicator of quality correlates somehow with editorial quality. And one of the issues we've seen most recently has been that even when stories get debunked, very quickly, sometimes mm-hmm. from the very people who have shared them. So if you think <laughs> of that kind of case in in, uh, in Austin that the New York Times um, talked about, it doesn't seem to to matter. These stories kind of get a life of their own. Yeah, the you know, it's I mean, what's the old trope that a lie gets around the world before the truth puts its pants on, mm-hmm. its trousers on, depending on your accent. Um, and it's really it's magnified in social because things that evoke a visceral emotional response go further, travel farther, faster than the boring actual fact. (laughs) And that is a a continues to be a challenge for news organizations. So how should they be responding to those challenges? I think they should be aware that it's happening. (laughs) And I guess they're pretty aware. I mean, mean, now. (laughs) But we shouldn't have gotten to a point, why do we always go from it's fine to it's a crisis Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than, oh, we could have fixed this before it became a crisis. I would really like my colleagues in media to think about why we do that. Uh, In terms of figuring out what to do, people are only now starting to pay attention to why is it that these kinds of things share. And, you know, I really want to give props to my former colleagues at BuzzFeed News, especially Craig Silverman's team, who's been doing genuinely groundbreaking work on this, and also to Claire Wardle at First Draft and just thinking about, okay, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Who are the people who are deliberately trying to spread this? Who are the people who are baited into spreading this, who don't necessarily have malicious intent, what tools are they using, what mechanisms are they appealing to, and how can we counterbalance that, and what are some of the things we need to do? And why do you think this I mean, this is so kind of, a, of, of, the, of the moment? Because the issues you talked about and the kind of work that Craig has been doing, you know, it's for not years. It's for years. <laughs> it, it, it's not you, but clearly there seems to have been a, a tipping point and this kind of sudden lapse into crisis mode. Yes, there was an election 
that didn't uh. go as planned. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is being used, this is the proverbial stroll, as it were. People are like, well, if I had known or if this, if these rumors hadn't been spreading or blah, 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 blah. It doesn't actually matter what the merits of those are and those are still being debated. That is being, that is like taken on the figure of why people care about it now. What I think happened is a combination of things. Certainly there was an election, but certainly the volume of what was being disseminated seemed to become much more pronounced in a relatively short amount of time, right? There have always been email chains saying deodorant will cause cancer, or, you know, like Snopes, my favorite website on the internet, has been doing this for a really long time, like debunking things and saying this isn't true. There have always been tabloid magazines or like Bat Baby seen in Arizona. <laughs> you know, none of these are novel. What I think is novel is that most liberal Western democracies, liberal in the sense of like the democratic organization rather than the political bent, haven't had to deal with mass disinformation. And it's something that they, we just don't have the muscles for. And we're only now beginning to develop them. And I guess also things like national actors influencing that and playing a role in that and also using that as a deliberate tool yes. as part of their foreign policy goals. That is something that's new. It's definitely new to us. Yeah. <laughs> definitely new to us. Um, and given that these ideas have been kind of uh, germinating for a while, kind of reached their kind of major gestation during the, the election period, um, were these issues you were really thinking about and considering before your uh, fellowship at Stanford or, or has the sort of time and space and the opportunity to step back from a day-to-day newsroom just given you an opportunity to see the world in a slightly different light? It's, I think it's definitely both, right? Like the fellowship is a gift. Um, thank you, Knight Foundation. The, the fellowship is a gift that has allowed me not just to think about these things, but to continue thinking about these things and to, you know, go forth and ask more questions about them. But I've been interested in this for a very long time. I was that annoying person who, when somebody sent me an email forward, would reply with the Snopes link, you know, and I was like 14. I was like, your chain letters are not, why are you doing this? <laughs> I've had a long-standing tradition of just being annoying and fact-checking my friends and family, which they don't always appreciate. Mm-hmm. And then I re- distinctly recall during Hurricane Sandy, being in, I was living in New York at the time and I was in the part of Queens that was totally unharmed. My Wi-Fi didn't even go down for five minutes. And so I was just on the internet while people were freaking out. And I remember people deliberately sharing doctored images, you know, oh, there's a shark in the subway or the New York Stock Exchange is flooded and it's going to close down or there's been a massive fire over here and thinking, the hell, (laughs) what is going on? Why is this happening? And then seeing sites like BuzzFeed in real time, trying to debunk the misinformation that was being shared, you know, and posting pictures, they would have a picture of like the Photoshop of the shark, which is like fake (laughs) in bright yellow letters. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is new because there have been other disasters that, you know, we've had Twitter before for other hurricanes. This is new. BuzzFeed are really the only people who are set up to deal with something like this. And this isn't going to go away. And that was well before I ever started working at BuzzFeed. I was working at a technology company at the time. And but that stands out to me as a moment when I realized that there had like something had changed in the ecosystem. I, 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 for me, one of those kind of tipping points was the London riots back mm-hmm. in I think it was 2012, mm-hmm. where uh, the only way you could get a real sense of what was happening was actually through social media because broadcast media's coverage was just too big. They were covering all of London, mm-hmm. whereas I wanted to know what's happening in my particular pocket. 
So uh, my part of London, uh, Peckham, was where Anderson Cooper from CNN infamously went into a supermarket in full <laughs> flak jacket and helmet as if he was in Mogadishu rather than uh, Peckham. Peckham. Uh, but there were stories floating around about uh, the local supermarket being set on fire. And I actually mm-hmm. went out and took photographs and shared them as like, no, it's not. And this is opposite where I live mm-hmm. and things like that. And that was a kind of realization that, you know, false rumors spread in exactly the same way as real rumors. Mm-hmm. But often they're meeting an information gap. Yep. Exactly, uh, and people are desperate for uh, for up to date information and that traditional sources are unable to fulfil. And that's an element of the flattening. You know, it's the the idea that if something has happened in the world, you should know about it five seconds later. And media organisations have historically not been set up to give you five seconds later what you want to know because we don't know, <laughs> right? In chaotic situations, if there's been a, a bombing, if there's been some kind of attack, if there's been a shooting. All we have is like rumor and speculation at the outset. Even the police don't have any information. And even if they do, they're not necessarily going to share it with us or they will share it with us in a very specific way. And so this expectation that people have because they're, all of their other digital me- needs are met instantaneously, they expect the same from news without stopping to think that being able to report out what's happening in a school shooting is different from getting a notification that your friend has checked into a place. So is there then a disconnect between consumer expectation and newsroom reality or do newsrooms need to do something differently to move closer towards those? I think it's a combination of the two, right? I don't want newsrooms to get into a position where they're, uh, shall we say, just filling up the air. <laughs> that would never happen. No, mm, no, we would never do that. 24-hour news, never, it's never going to happen. Back to you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing that we need to do better at is helping people sort through what we know and what we don't. One of my very favorite things that BuzzFeed News started doing was what we know. They would, like, in a breaking news situation, we would write these posts, and at the very top was the headlines, like, so-and-so has happened, what we know, with bullets. And then I saw other other iterations of that from other news organizations with things like, what we don't know. And I was like, yes, this is what we need to be doing. We need to be very clear about, there's a lot of things happening right now, there's a lot of rumor and speculation, here's what we have confirmed, and here's what we don't know. And that, I think, is, it was, is super helpful and the kind of thing that you can provide in a quasi-real-time fashion. And how well-equipped do you think newsrooms are? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very short response. <laughs> okay, so why is that? Why are they not prepared? Because this is not new. So you're talking about... Um, Hurricane Sandy has been kind of the, your kind of personal tipping point. Mm-hmm. And that's a few years ago now. So, so it's been very clear the direction of travel in terms of changing consumer expectations mm-hmm. um, and also the evolving nature of, of breaking news in the digital era. So here's the thing. There are some newsrooms that are fantastic at this, except they are called wire services, right? This, like the Bloomberg Speed Desk, which is staffed by superhuman people who can react to anything happening in any financial market in the world in less than 30 seconds. There are places where these kinds of skills have been honed and developed. Those are just not evenly distributed <laughs> across all newsrooms. And for a long time, they weren't even valued across all newsrooms, right? Writing a beautiful lead or thinking about the inverted pyramid. These are things that are being taught as opposed to if we drop you in the middle of a protest and we ask you to file on social from there, what do you do? How do you approach that? How do you situate people where you are? How do you identify that you're at a press conference or that you're at a, you know, we we really need to rethink some of the questions that we ask reporters to ask. And we need to rethink some of how we are then putting that information back out into the world. Sounds like we also need to reevaluate the skills that most matter in news organisations too. Yes. I mean, who knew that real-time fact-checking would be so important? 
and in a similar vein, you were also very uh, you were also critical yesterday in your talk, and anybody who follows you on on Twitter will also know you talk a lot about the mobile experience, which is not surprising given your background, but also the bad mobile yeah. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to sum up for people who are, who are not familiar with that what is what is a bad mobile experience for uh, for people, and um, what should it be? Sure, what's the mobile utopia? Oh, mobile utopia. When I talk about bad mobile experiences, specifically around news, what I mean, there's a range of things. There's, hey, I subscribe to your media organization, which I do. I give lots of money to lots of media organizations. I would like to read your story. That is a simple request, but often I would like to read your story means I followed you on Twitter. I tapped on the link. Before I could read your story, I have to look at an ad that has popped up. I can't even see the headline. The ad covers the whole thing. I close that ad. I try to scroll. I can see the headline, one line of text, and then there's another ad, (laughs) which might be an auto-playing video with sound. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to try this again. I keep scrolling. I get a bit further down, and finally I can read the story, right? That is a bad user experience. I am a paying user, but you have these short-term incentives as a publisher, which I understand because I would like us to continue to pay journalists, around viewability, around, you know, telling your, if you sold a contract to advertisers, you have to deliver me and you have to be able to say, Stacy saw the ad. And so you make it as obtrusive as possible. But what I interpret that to mean is you value me as inventory more than you value me as a subscriber. And those economics are horrifying because it it leads to that kind of user experience. That's one. The other is I tap on your story and five seconds later, it still hasn't loaded. (laughs) Five seconds is five hours in mobile time. I mean, five seconds, I don't even think I give you five seconds. I probably give you a second and a half before I'm just like, whatever, I'll just read any of the 10,000 other tabs I have open. Um, And that happens very, very frequently. And there is rigorous research that's been conducted into what people's thresholds are for waiting for something to render when they have completed an action. And then the third is, I don't know what you're trying to tell me in this story. And by that, I mean the print conventions that we have taken and applied to digital formats, right? Whether it is a video that you spend the first 15 seconds like giving me relevant stuff when what I really want to know is like, did they repeal healthcare or not? Um, or it's a story in which the headline says one thing, but the lead is totally different because the you updated the story, but you didn't update the headline, or you updated the headline, but you didn't update the story. Or there's a super important correction that is five swipes down the page, and I can't, you know, I can't, I wouldn't even know it's there. And in some cases, it should have been a retraction because it changed the whole, the whole story is different now. Those are the kinds of things where even editorially, you are not serving me. Because things that would be really obvious on a desktop, especially, you know, those lovely large 24-inch monitor where I could see everything in one go, or really obvious on a printed page where that pull quote makes sense in context, do not translate into the experience that the vast majority of the people interacting with that story are having. So it sounds like there's a couple of tensions there. One is the perennial issue of how do you monetize mobile? Mm Mm-hmm. There is the the mobile user experience and a recognition that this is different to desktop or or, or tablet. Mm-hmm. And then there is also a, a desire and a need to change storytelling conventions that maybe are still, um, his, to some extent, historic, but kind of um, move lock, stock and barrel to, to mobile. Yeah, which, you know, which is what we do. It's like the first versions of news websites were the front page 
with some mock-up. Some, st- some still are. <laughs> Not going to name names, you know. <laughs> so in the mobile space, who are, who are the people you like? Who is doing this well? And who are the people you want to name and shame? I'm, so I'm wildly biased to BuzzFeed News app because I, think, I just think it's the best, obviously. My team built it. Um, but it is, in fact, great. And it's great because it threw out some conventions. There is no, there's no menu. There's no navigation. There is no infinite scroll. <laughs> it is a, here are some top stories. Here's some more stuff if you want to read it. And at the end, there's a lovely little note that says you're all caught up. It's just a, like a lovely news experience. And crucially, it includes things outside of the BuzzFeed News universe, right? So if there's an interesting story that we think our audiences should read, I still say we, that audiences should read it's in the app. I really appreciate that. It loads really quickly also. Um, I like that. Uh, I loved NYT Now. I, I rest in peace. I appreciate that the good elements of it were integrated into the, the main New York Times app. You know, they're going to continue to work on that. It's great. But the reality is most people don't download apps. And I say this as somebody who spent a lot of time trying to get people to download apps. And so mobile web has to be better, right? And that's people are doing... The Washington Post has been ahead of the game in using Google's accelerated mobile... T- is it pages or project, project now? They changed. Or pages. Amp. Amp. <laughs> so, you know, you get this experience. It loads blazingly fast. That's good. They're nailing the performance. But if you somehow stumble upon a Washington Post page on mobile that is not AMP, they have one of the worst ad experiences of, you know, the publishers. The LA Times is similar. Most of the trunk properties seem to rely on extremely in-your-face advertising experiences that, you know, given that I pay, I would like to figure out how, just charge me more, something. Let me not have to suffer through being pitched American Express when I already have an American Express. That's that's certainly a thing. I think of email as a mobile format. I've always thought of email as a mobile format. I read almost all my email on my phone. And so newsletters are a big one. I appreciate the BuzzFeed News newsletter. Um, I still read the Quartz Daily Brief. I pay attention to what the skim is doing. I Some of the New York Times newsletters are quite good. And then there are lots of, you know, really, really niche. There's a science writer named Ed Young who works for The Atlantic, who's fantastic. And he has a an absolutely brilliant collection of news stories about science that I would not otherwise see. But I don't think publishers necessarily, when they talk about mobile, even think about email. I don't think publishers, when you talk about mobile, think Facebook or Twitter, even though basically 100% of Facebook's audience these days is a mobile audience. You know, So we still have this very compartmentalized definition of how we think about mobile. And it allows us to say, well, you know, we have an app or we've got a mobile website and we're good. (laughs) As opposed to everything you do needs to be in a mobile context. Uh, The uh, publisher and and editor of the Register Guard, which is the local paper here, described email as the cockroach of communication. Good Lord, it's never going to die. It's never going to (laughs) die. And it's surprisingly uh, surprisingly resilient, which I think is interesting. Um, At the same time, you know that's an old format, and so maybe people kind of struggle to get excited about that, even though it's just got this. Please make your emails responsive. Longevity. I would really like to be able to read them <laughs> when I'm on my phone, and they're not like 0.5 type. <laughs> and so, what about some of the new? Um, alongside kind of reinvigorating email for the the mobile age, given that it's cockroach cockroach like <laughs> tendencies. <laughs> Uh, what about some of the newer innovations? That uh, what, what are those that kind of caught your eye? I mean, if you think over the course of the last year, we had the kind of more conversational app that Quartz launched on on iOS. Mm-hmm. You had Mike and others experimenting with uh, various kind of bots on Kick and mm-hmm. elsewhere. You know, th- it's it's an exciting time. It's definitely an exciting time. Um, GIFs as news is my favorite. I have seen some genuinely impressive GIFs as quasi video 
in a form it loads really fast it can load really fast if you optimize and it takes advantage of the fact that people are living in streams and so you don't have to leave the stream to do that you know the same with embeds and the way that people are embedding soundcloud into into twitter streams or they're embedding audio and video into facebook these are things i think are are really interesting really exciting um voice is another element of mobile that i find super exciting so even though siri will never understand me which is fine there are cool things happening with how we are using audio for storytelling and if you think about devices like google home or amazon alexa and how those are replacing radio but also the fact that they're going voice is going to be integrated into everything right they're going to, it's going to be in cars it's going to be in your fridge you know and that is like genuinely mobile wherever you go there will be some kind of voice interface following you around and yet still as publishers we think of podcasts as like the most innovative thing ever i mean not <laughs> shout out to podcasters love your work but it, this is not new as a medium it's new as a medium that people listen to <laughs> you know more people finally listen to podcasts but we were doing them for a long time but there are other ways of thinking about voice right so while i'm not a huge fan of text based chatbots because it usually takes me longer to interact with a bot by typing than just to do anything else right just to read just like let me just i'm just going to go to the website and solve this problem because it's going to be faster but asking questions of a bot using voice is often faster than going to the website and looking that up and so like how are we thinking about those things is what is i think genuinely cool And what about the 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 question I I agree with you on that on that coolness um but I think one concern for publishers in that space is the kind of elements of personalization mm-hmm. that particularly if you're then getting uh content and material served to you through uh voice commands and um correspondence the issues that we're seeing now already on social of people consuming content and not knowing where it's from oh it's from huge it's a huge problem is only going to grow yeah. as i can sit in my car and say i want to listen to a comedy now and it's 15 minutes serve it to me and i don't care where it's from yeah there's that and then there's also there's a really interesting/horrifying situation in which if you have a google home device and you ask it a question depending and it uses structured data from places like wikipedia to answer the question and so it can be really unreliable <laughs> because structured data can be manipulated and therefore the answer that you get can be manipulated and you have no way of checking right you 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 know you're even less context so you've got challenges around you're indifferent to the source and the platforms want you to be indifferent to the source they want you to think of it will be the new equivalent of when you ask somebody where they get their news and you say facebook right you are indifferent to the source you think of facebook as the source that i think is scary then you have no way of going deeper really right now the experience of going deeper is you know amazon will or google home will say you can check out more information in the app nobody ever does that i guarantee <laughs> that i am a highly motivated user of these devices and i've gone back to the app approximately never after i've done that kind of query and there are ethical conundrums associated with this and there are certainly like are we being responsible purveyors of information conundrums associated with this And and of course the system can be gamed as we saw with Burger King only a couple of weeks ago yeah. and you know that kind of those kind of efforts only going to become more commonplace. Yes, and we should expect them to become more commonplace. I think one of the most important things that I try to convey to my friends working in design and, and technology is when you are building things think about how it will be used for evil because it will be used for evil. And so what can you do to mitigate that as 
you know, in the beginning rather than when it's a giant flaming crisis. And so what does this mean for for students? You've spent the last two and a half days here um, on campus at the University of Oregon. How should they be thinking about some of these issues, both in terms of their media consumption habits, but also the kind of skills and knowledge they should be developing as they think about moving into the workforce? Please be good writers. (laughs) Um, I I mean, writing continues to be a really important skill. It kind of doesn't matter what medium you're in and then you know then I'll always have photography students say but I take pictures I'm like yes but then you need to pitch those pictures to editors and if you can write a good pitch then you're in the game or you need to write a great caption for it exactly so there's that but there's also cultivate an enormous amount of curiosity and moderate that with skepticism (laughs) so find something be interested in and then ask yourself why (laughs) what's going on here what can I learn about this and if you and try to get out of your comfort zone right so if you are really comfortable in audio just try I mean I'm a horrible photographer like it's total disaster Um, I can't compete with my friends on Instagram It's, it's not even a thing but I still try to take pictures because I need to understand what are some of the features in Instagram or what are some of the features in Snapchat or you know how are lenses and filters evolving and what are some of the conventions that people are doing I'm never going to be great at it but I need to continue to be curious about it right or people who are fantastic video storytellers but don't like being in front of the camera like go in front of the camera just always try to push yourself as outside of your comfort zone as you can because it makes you better once you're back in it what would have been the other um, kind of major messages and, and take takeaways for students whilst you've been here Stacy's career corner is obviously a <laughs> thing we need to bring back <laughs> I'm working on it I'm working on it um Ask more questions. I think there is a real reluctance to sound like you don't know things. There's so many things I don't know. <laughs> There's so many things. And that's okay. And it's, it's, it's giving it's people permission qu- to say it's fine. Yeah, it's and- fine. And not only is it fine, you it is much better to find out <laughs> than not to, right? Uh, like On my teams, I've always tried to build an idea that I'm not going to judge you for not knowing something. I'm going to judge you if you don't want to find out. Right. It's like I want you to want to find out. I want you to recognize when there's an area in which you lack a skill or or the experience or the background and then go out and fix that, correct it, get that skill. But if you don't ask questions because you're more concerned about seeming like, you know, you're going to get left behind by the people who do ask them. Okay, Uh, we're we're coming to a close uh, now. So I just wanted to quickly ask you you what's next for you. So you've had this coming to the end of this fantastic year. (laughs) Amazing year at Stanford. Stanford. All good things must come to an end. So what's next for Stacey? I am trying to figure out whether I want to do product things for a media company or media things for a product company. (laughs) Because that, you know, that's the dream. And I shall hopefully have an answer very soon. Okay, so we'll uh, watch this space. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion. A reminder that you can catch Stacey's full talk and other materials related to her presentation on our website. That's demystifying.uoregon.edu. In the meantime, it just remains me to thank my guest, Stacey Marie Ishmael. You're welcome. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.